Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three of our editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by senior editor Tess Thackera, friend of the show. Hey, Isaac. And deputy editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. So Tess has done some something of an investigation to art therapy programs at Rikers Island. We're going to talk a little bit about her story and hear a bit more about how she put it together and some things that didn't make it into the piece. Next, we'll discuss how an artist's context, how their life, what they've done, what they've said should impact how their work is treated. Georg Bazlitt said that, quote, women don't paint very well, unquote. Should that impact how he see, we see his work? We'll tackle that question. And then, of course, we'll share where we'll be drinking white wine in the art world this week. Alex, as always, I think, is traveling somewhere. So, Tess, your piece for Riker's Most Troubled Inmates, Art Offers Hope, came out last week. Incredible read. I highly recommend anyone who's listening who hasn't read it to go check it out right now. But for those of us looking for kind of the, the Cliff Notes version, can you maybe tell me a little bit about what you found when you looked at art therapy programs on Riker's Island? Yeah, so this piece is primarily based on interviews I conducted with two of the art therapists at Rikers. There are, I think, 11 in total or 12 with the supervisor. And it's really an exploration of the methodology behind art therapy and sort of a, an exploration of what actually happens in those sessions um, and you know how can this actually benefit the incarcerated population specifically. So what kind of drew you to this topic? A few years ago, I covered the Arts and Corrections program in California, um, and I went to a panel discussion of prisoners who had created art in prisons. This was actually at Alcatraz. And I was just kind of fascinated seeing these, like, burly, tattooed ex-convicts. I realize this is a very cliched (laughs) image of what a prisoner looks like, but this is genuinely what they look like, you know, with scars and tattoos, just talking passionately about how making paintings and drawings in prison had just completely changed their lives. And what are some kind of the logistical difficulties that come with teaching an art class at a place like Rikers Island? I mean, one one of the anecdotes that struck me was sort of the, the materials are contraband. So there are very limited materials that they can use in the sessions, scissors and tape, for obvious reasons, are banned. Um, There are also certain materials that might end up as contraband. So materials like stickers and paint, you know, might appeal to the inmates because they have very limited access to anything with which they can use to express themselves. Or choice in general. Or choice in general. And so oftentimes if they use paint, you know, the, the inmates may smuggle it out and end up coloring their hair with it or coloring their nails. And the moment anything goes missing out of the material bag, that leads to invasive strip searches and their cells are overturned. And so the therapists just want to avoid that at all costs. I I imagine like art therapy is something that when, you know, a right-wing conservative is picturing lovey-dovey, like liberal policies for dealing with prisoners, like, you know, giving violent people uh, a crayon is sort of like the stereotype. But you sort of talk a little bit about how there's actually like cognitive and scientific kind of underpinnings to to like an idea of art therapy. Yeah, so there is actually neuroscience that shows that art can positively impact your brain. And I spoke to a trauma and art therapy specialist at NYU who said, you know, that, that art can actually help to repair neurostructures in your brain that if you've experienced trauma may have become neglected. And so it helps you rebuild these neurostructures that enable you to be flexibly adaptive in social situations. And that's kind of like really important specifically in Rikers as well. So I think one thing that's 
that's particularly to remember about Rikers is that it's a jail, not a prison. Um, so a lot of the, or most of the inmates there have not been convicted, and the ones that ha are are there on sentences for under a year. So the very experience, I think, itself of being there is traumatic, but it's also a short time instance. So developing these kind of coping mechanisms for prisoners to be able to spend their time there, um, whether waiting trial or you know waiting out a short term, being able to kind of develop these mechanisms that when they go back out into the real world, um, help them regulate their emotions, or even while in prison that they don't reoffend or, or do something that would kind of keep them there longer than is necessary is really important. Yeah, so currently there is a movement to abolish solitary confinement for teenagers at Rikers. Um, they received a lot of bad press about this, and now that movement has been paused for some reason and they've received a lot of bad press about that too. Art therapy is also available to those in solitary confinement that didn't end up making it into my piece but Katie one of the therapists talked about the experience of leading art therapy with inmates who are literally shackled by their feet and arms and they're allowed one free hand with a pencil. You weren't allowed to speak to the inmates because of uh, legal yeah, HIPAA regulations, HIPAA because yeah. this is all happening under the auspices of the mental health program. It's actually not, the program isn't part of the DOC, so technically they're patients. This program is available only to those with mental health problems at the moment, which is the huge majority of the population at Rikers. The therapist said that basically everyone on that island has experienced some kind of trauma. So even though you weren't able to talk to them, you, you sort of, there were some testimonials that you read in a letter. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what art therapy meant to some of the prisoners? Yeah, I mean, so the letters that Katie showed me were from patients essentially thanking her for the experience of art therapy and expressing how much it meant to them, you know, talking about how the colors calmed them, access to choice, just generally having a sense of peace of mind through the art. Um, and I think there are several ways that, that the art can bring them to that peaceful state. One is sort of the validation of, you know, discovering that you can actually create something beautiful. Some patients talked about the sort of self-discovery that they experienced through the arts. So Katie was telling me one anecdote about a patient who perceived herself to be a very dark person and then she found herself creating this very brightly colored work and she just was amazed that she could produce something colorful and joyful. There's also this really powerful anecdote of a woman who'd been incarcerated since she was six, or 17 and had been going through some difficulties dealing with her gender and sexual identity. She made this amazing booklet, which we have pictures of in the piece, uh, and it has this kind of androgynous man with glitter on his face and the, on the front of it and different other images throughout. On the cover, she writes these questions, it's beautiful, hideous, what are you, who are you? And I think these two things kind of point to art's ability, not you know art in the art world that we talk about, um, a lot of the time on this podcast, and we write about it most of the time on the website, but art kind of writ large and creative expression to help people discover themselves and get out of their day-to-day -day situation, um, particularly for people like those in Rikers and in other kind of disenfranchised populations who don't necessarily have day-to-day -day access to creative expression, to choice. Um, they have difficult personal situations, difficult lives. Yeah, there's also um, one of the interesting things that Katie told me was how art can function as this very powerful metaphor for the patient. So she talked about how responsive they are to being given a manila folder to put their artwork in, you know, and same with the, with the booklet that, that that particular patient was creating, that having 
a container to put your artwork in, it sort of becomes this metaphor for being able to define your own boundaries. You know, you have the power to open it and close it. You can kind of like reformulate your life in a way or create it in a safe space. Yeah, it's a sort of a form of self-determination in some way. And then there's a lot of, you know, it's interesting that the piece kind of talks a lot about the therapist and the and they experience, I mean, it's not easy to go into a space like Rikers Island and no. teach art therapy. So what are the kind of challenges that, you know, from logistical to psychological that, mm. that, are, that therapists face as well? Yeah, so I mean, these therapists are going into, these are all groups, group sessions of about 16 or 17 people. And, you know, they're an hour long. They're dealing with difficult situations sometimes. I mean, the conversations get difficult. The artwork surfaces, difficult conversations that they then need to navigate. Uh, a lot of these patients have extremely heavy cases, you know, murder charges. So I think for the therapist, they just, I mean, they're trained to navigate those situations. But well, and you said that they don't, they try to not look up even the cases so they can be impartial. Yeah, I think that the therapist's you know, they all have slightly different approaches and some do research the cases because they feel then they're better equipped to handle the conversations that might arise. Mm -hmm. But Katie, one of the therapists, said that she found herself having a very negative reaction. A lot of the times these cases are highly publicized. You know, you can just Google them and find information about what they may or may not have done. And she found herself having a very negative reaction. So she stopped doing that. And now... I mean, she told me that she keeps her work life and her personal life so separate that she won't even take notes from her sessions into her house. You know, she has separate wardrobes for her personal life and her work life. And I think, you know, this is just an effort to not take all of the very heavy subject matter that she's engaging with on a day-to-day basis home with her. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But for those of you who haven't read the piece, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to do so. There's some incredible photographs. Um, It's really moving. And and I think it's an important read. But shifting back into the art world for a minute. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Georg Baselitz is a prominent German painter. And in 2013, he made some controversial remarks about women and women painters. Yeah, so in 2013, Baslitz was doing an interview with Der Spiegel, which is a German newspaper, and he told the reporter, women don't paint very well, it's a fact. He went on to kind of say, qualify it as they don't pass the market test, that their paintings are continually undervalued, or not valued as highly as men. I don't think he would say that it's undervalued. He's kind of a market guy. But this has woven a web of controversy around him, and you know he's gone on to repeat these sentiments many times since. Um, whether or not just to kind of jostle the public is something that we'll probably get into a little bit later. Yeah, and so Basilis has a show currently on at the Stadel Museum in Frankfurt, and Alex and I were having a conversation about whether or not we should cover this, and I sort of found myself having a like. Oh, like, I don't want to, no, let's not cover Basilitz, like, <laughs> no. And then, you know, that sort of led to a conversation of, like, why am I having that reaction? Because I can't shake these things that he said when I look at his work. Um, so we sort of decided to turn that into a piece and commission someone to think about, you know, a woman specifically to, to go to the museum, look at his work, and think about 
how uh, knowing that he made these comments affects the perception of the work or not. Because I think ultimately, you know, whatever he said, he's still one of the most important artists to come out of Germany in the last 50 years. And so I think that it, it just complicates the issue a lot, whether or not that should affect his kind of place in art history. Well, wh what was the conclusion you came to test? So the piece was actually written by Arielle Beer, and the conclusion she comes to is that, yes, you can put those comments aside because the work is fantastic and also... The subject matter is, so this particular show is his series called Heroes, and they are images of uh, soldiers from the Second World War. And the conclusion she comes to is that actually these heroes are men that are, you know, disaffected and traumatized um, and sort of almost rendered impotent by the experience of war. And so, it, you know, I think she probably went thinking she was going to have an experience of, of work that communicated some of that machismo and actually she found works that suggested um, an image of the male that was on the contrary to that. So she, she's not here, so I'm not going to, you know, criticize the piece itself, but I think she raises an interesting question when she says, Basilitz should be held accountable for his statements, but should his work and its historical importance also be put on trial? And to me, the answer is yes, of course, 100%. That's how you hold an artist accountable for their statements. Like, what else should we do except be critical? Um, think about the way in which the glorification and fragility of, like, male soldiers is, is like, a notoriously well-worn subject for misogynists, too. I'm, I'm, like, not... I'm not convinced that that, like, shining a spotlight on, like, the tortured mind of a, of a soldier is, like, somehow independent of these comments. I think that they're right in line. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know... I, I would n never <laughs> condone Basel's statements, but I do think from like a, you know, mixing someone's biography with their work perspective, we've kind of gotten in the habit of that because of the pervasiveness of identity art within the last 20, 30 years, which has been, you know, some of the most important art that has defined that period of contemporary art history. But at the same time, that's not something that he's dealing with specifically. So, you know, I would be an advocate of going back through the canon and looking at, you know, maybe it's interesting to look at everybody's biographies and reappraise the entire canon for people's political or, you know, derogatory positions. But to pick and choose based on what we know publicly is also a little bit problematic. Like, I don't think that just kind of beating down on one person really solves any problems. It's about kind of, if, if we're going to take that position, we have to kind of apply it equally across the board. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take that position. I think that... You're going to write the book? I'm, maybe. I mean, I think that, you know, that there's, there's always m more work to be done because these images, uh, you know, Boslitz's work, but even looking back at the art historical canon, and I'm certainly guilty of not always doing this, so I'm not trying to take, you know, a, a, the moral high ground here, but these images convey messages and meanings, and if the person who is painting it or creating a work has some internalized views, I... I'm almost certain that those sometimes very subtly, sometimes almost imperceptibly manifest in the work itself. And so I think a very important part of art history is going back and disentangling something that looks very apolitical, minimalism, modernism, and sort of being like, hmm, why is everyone who did this men? Where are all the women? What are they trying to say? And if you look at a show like The Keeper at the New Museum, which has a work by Roger Caillois, that's, that's what Four Semesters of French got me, that, that pronunciation of that name. You know, it's a very beautiful... 
uh, collection of stones, um, these beautiful geodes. And nowhere in the wall text does it mention that he was criticized by people like Amé Cézanne for mobilizing a very sort of Western-centric idea of history and culture. And I wish that that had been in there because that's important to know. And it makes me realize that, one, people who do things that I really like can be bad people, and that's important, or have political viewpoints I disagree with. And two, that maybe I should be more critical of the work itself because what's in there, what are these subtle messages but I think you just made a really good point, which is that you, know, you can like something but also be cognizant of the problematic context from which it arises. And I, I think that's maybe like the somewhat of the conclusion, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tess, but that you kind of come to with this piece and with this show is that like it's important to recognize his position in all of this, but it doesn't mean that you can't get something out of the work in the process. And being like that much more cognizant of the position where he's coming from, like you said, does Im- inform your reading of the work, but it shouldn't mean you have to cast off the work entirely. Sure, but when someone is alive, I think doing something like this kind of lends their personal opinion and star power sort of more weight in a way that I think is is flawed. Like, I I don't I don't think that um, it's it's that easy necessarily to be like, oh, Basilis's art is great, but his work is is I mean, but his personal life is like really reprehensible i think it's easy to say that i think it's much harder when you're making decisions to come through with that like do we pay attention is a decision that we make and if you like if if you let you know you're like oh well we'll just pay attention to the work i think that that's almost impossible to do in in actual fact i personally feel that basilisk heroes could be seen to align with his views in some way in the sense that that there is just a, a male centrism um, to these depictions of soldiers. And I think although they are disaffected and wounded and traumatized, they also are heroes. I mean, they're massive and, mm-hmm. you know, they are heroized. But I think, I don't know, I think if we apply this across the canon, you know, you would just end up disavowing work like across the board. I mean, I can think of so many examples. I mean, even people like Picasso, um, Diego Rivera, famous philanderers who, you know, didn't seem to have a huge, I mean, mean, women were their muses, but they also took advantage of that position (laughs) a lot. But, you know, their work has been groundbreaking and iconic and just pushed the envelope in every way. And you have to separate it out a little bit. Yeah, I think that you kind of do i mean i i know that there's so many cases like we're confronted with this in popular culture all the time like woody allen for example um you know how do you watch a woody allen movie knowing now about the allegations about his children and, and this comes up with tons of different stars and i think it is really difficult and everyone has to parse it in their own way but i think that and to the piece's credit it did this it always in my mind must be foregrounded with a sort of level of criticism like if we're going to engage with diego rivera and i think it is more problematic with artists like Picasso where you really do forget or the, the the negative things just aren't mentioned ever in a piece usually it becomes a problem yeah I mean I also think that there are um there are just different degrees you know if you think of someone like Bill Cosby I mean that his abuses are so extreme that you know I think a lot of people won't ever watch the Cosby show again um but someone like Picasso I mean we don't know that he ever raped anyone. You know, mm. it's, it, it, there are different degrees. It's, it's a gray, <laughs> there's a gray area. So I think we can leave it there. Um, talking a little bit about the art world canon. Tess, where are you going to be uh, drinking white wine in the art world this week? 
well, I'm going to be traveling to London at the end of the week um, and then from there to Spain. So I'm going to be checking out the new Tate extension uh-huh. and I'm also going to be exploring the Malaga art scene, which I hear is a uh, burgeoning and rich. You're definitely going there for the art scene. Mm, I'm going there for the beach, but yeah. <laughs> and controversy, they have a pumpy do. Controversy around the the Tate with the Carl Andre exhibition just kind of tied into what we were talking about before. Oh yeah, that's yeah. for another that's podcast. A good, yeah. yeah, Carl Andre. <laughs> we cannot. We don't even have time to go there. Um, Alex, what about you? Um, well, I'm going to copy both of you from various points earlier this year and go to Detroit um, this coming weekend to um, both visit my dad, who's having a birthday and hopefully see a few of the amazing things that Tess and Isaac you've flogged in various pieces. Another, another chance to go back and read Isaac's amazing uh, Detroit Idea Cities piece. Listeners, I'm blushing right now. You can't see it, but it's, it's happening. So I am going to be going to the Studio Museum to check out the Alma Thomas exhibition. And um, one of Alma Thomas's pieces is actually in the White House. I have to say one of the more abstract... Uh, pieces that they have most of them are sort of figurative paintings of like very seminal moments in the american american history so yeah i'm I'm really excited to check out that show so that's all we have time for this week thanks to our guests tess and alex for joining us here today Um, please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on itunes it helps other people find the show Uh, we had production assistance from abigail kane this week and our producer is joe sykes the theme music is broke for free see you guys next time (laughs) 